As we come to the end of one of the hottest summers on record in the Northern Hemisphere, a summer dominated by apocalyptic headlines on the reality of climate breakdown, the need for collective action to fight climate change has never been clearer. In July, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke to leaders of 40 nations at the Petersburg Climate Summit and brought the existential risks of climate breakdown into sharp focus. Let's hear a clip from that speech. This has to be the decade of decisive climate action. That means trust, multilateralism and collaboration. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. The communications industry is under pressure to be part of effective change. There's great opportunity for us to be part of the solution, but also significant risk. A recent European Commission report found 43% of companies' green claims are exaggerated, false or deceptive. In January, for the first time, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change called out misinformation. To understand these risks and opportunities, we need to speak to an expert. So we invited Christine Arena, founder and CEO of social impact production company Generous Films, to join us on the podcast. Christine is an expert on climate disinformation and greenwashing. Her early research investigated the line between true and false claims on corporate sustainability. She authored some of the first books on the subject, including the award-winning The High Purpose Company. So let's get into this existential topic. Christine, thanks so much for coming on the Meaningful Media podcast. It's my pleasure. So your career has spanned creative work, not-for-profit, research, filmmaking, and more. We're so lucky to have you on and have your perspective today. And perhaps you can start with telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Oh, sure thing. I'm delighted to join you. Um, My journey, I am a little bit of a square peg in a round hole when it comes to our industry. Um, We usually categorize people as, you know, they're creatives or they're strategists. I'm a little bit of both. I have about 20 years of experience in social impact storytelling. So I've always had the lens of sustainability and climate um, and how do we help brands take stands, but also talk about this, engage in a meaningful way. So I have spent 20 years doing that. I wrote some early books um, published in 2003 and 2004 uh, because I was really interested in that line between authentic and inauthentic storytelling. Um, We were just starting to talk about greenwashing as an industry and I wanted to understand that. So that's always been my lens. Um, I currently run a company called Generous Films and we're a production company. So I, half of the company focuses on brand sponsored content and the other half original productions, which we create and distribute. So my role, I think I wear a couple of hats, which is, you know, the creative content production on that side, as well as on the activist and research side, trying to really understand the evolution of greenwash, the evolution of climate disinformation, and then messaging that back um, to our industry, as well as to the broader world. So you talked about greenwashing there. You're a leader in thinking about what greenwashing is, advocating for tackling it, and we're going to be leaning into talking about that today. But it's useful to start with some definitions. So we're going to talk about climate mis- and disinformation and greenwashing. And to help frame that conversation for our listeners, can you define climate mis- and disinformation for us? What's the difference between it and greenwashing? Sure. So climate mis- and disinformation and greenwash are closely related, very closely related, but they're different. 
When we talk about misinformation or disinformation, we're talking about information that runs contrary to climate science. So contrary to the science and established fact. Um, and when we step back and look at the forms of misinformation and disinformation circulating and percolating out there, we really notice two different streams of rhetoric. On the one hand, there is what we call denial rhetoric. And that's rhetoric that is tries to instill the notion that the science around climate change is still uncertain, that scientists themselves should not be trusted, and so forth. Um, the other stream, which is the much bigger stream at this point, is what we call climate delay rhetoric. And that is rhetoric uh, designed to confuse people about uh, the, what the real solutions to climate change are. So academic researchers and social scientists have provided us with frameworks, with peer-reviewed frameworks and a roadmap for assessing and understanding disinformation and how misinformation and disinformation and how it works. I will also say that when it comes to disinformation with the D, we're looking at not only information that runs contrary to science and fact, but um, with, when we use disinformation with a D, really we mean that those messages are amplified in order to achieve a political or financial goal. And very often we see techniques, strategies, methods um, that are, I would say, deliberately unethical. For example, astroturfing, which is the creation of fake grassroots uh, support. We also see smear campaign tactics, um, attacks on scientists, attacks on academic researchers, attacks on human rights lawyers. But those are some just examples of when we use disinformation with the D, we're talking about deliberate tactics that are meant to confuse and conflate reality. So this is something that's quite insidious, right? I mean, you, you sounds almost like the techniques of propaganda that are being used throughout all of communication. So this isn't just a, a discrete thing that sits in a media narrative or, or something we have to consider uh, when we work on creative messages, which of course we do as an industry on behalf of brands. This is a, a moment of alarm you're really sounding in terms of uh, this discourse. Absolutely. And in fact, when we talk about propaganda, whether it's political propaganda or business propaganda, corporate propaganda, the harm is the same and the tactics are the same. So to get to understand disinformation and misinformation, you really do have to understand how propaganda works, what the methods and tactics are, what the main messages are, and they shift over time. Um, one of the other issues that we see now, especially since the Ukraine war, is false amplification. And false amplification is uh, bot-driven, um, well, you'll have uh, right now our latest statistics that we just picked up in the last few weeks shows that an average of 70% of climate misinformation retweets are amplified or retweeted by bot accounts versus human accounts. So whereas the disinformation message or misinformation message rather is emanating from human accounts, the amplification is coming from bots. So that is very, very interesting. Um, and that is to say like we are looking at media buys, we are looking at how amplification is occurring and we are really seeing new disinformation patterns emerge 
Um, I think it is entirely accurate to call it disinformation with a D. It's entirely accurate to use the word propaganda um, in certain cases. And I think our industry uh, really does need to look at the data and the research, a lot of which is open uh, source. Some of it is, a lot of it is in the public domain um, and really have a more serious moment mm. of reflection around how bad this problem truly is. So, so looking at that research, you recently completed some in collaboration with Influence Map. You've alluded to some of your findings a moment ago, but can you expand on, on what you found? Yes. So part of my role is just monitoring fossil fuel accounts or different accounts that tend to spread these messages. And we noticed in early February a sudden spike in attacks on renewable energy coming from fossil fuel linked accounts. And I thought that is very strange. This was pre-Ukraine war, um, just you know when the tension was building. And I thought, why now, just ahead of a humanitarian crisis, are we seeing these spikes in attacks on renewable energy? Um, and on February 22nd, the day before the invasion, um, the American Petroleum Institute uh, published a series of talking points. And I just remember feeling nauseous looking at the talking points because I realized that the talking points weren't targeting a general audience. The talking points were targeting the president of the United States. They were a list of demands almost, uh, release permits for drilling on federal lands, issue offshore drilling permits for the next five years, remove regulatory and legal uncertainty, meaning get those lawsuits and you know uh, environmental policy out of our way. Uh, at, at, so I kind of sprung into action and so did the researchers that are looking, again, monitoring this problem on an ongoing basis. We got some support, went to Influence Map, and Influence Map conducted an analysis of um, not just messaging uh, coming from fossil fuel linked accounts during that sort of COVID, that pre Ukraine post uh, invasion period, but also ad buys. Mm. We were looking at media buys and the concentration of media buys carrying these messages that were false messages, meaning they failed AFP fact checks. So we saw large uh, concentrated media buys. An example is the American Petroleum Institute's AstroTurf arm, Energy Citizens, um, which it doesn't acknowledge that's an AstroTurf arm, but we consider it an AstroTurf arm. AstroTurfing is the creation of fake grassroots support. Yep. It's meant to look like concerned citizens coming together to advocate for an issue, but really it's an industry-funded effort mm. typically focused on shutting down or blocking environmental uh, regulation, environmental policy. We noticed energy citizens during that time period bought 761 ads on Facebook containing messages that again, failed AFP fact checks. And it is a concentrated media buy because when we looked at the prior months, the prior six months, you know, their media buys were between 60 and 70 um, ads running similar messages in prior months. So that was an incredible spike. So these, these, are, then, these are formats of ads. These are variations of ads rather than just. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so that's just on Facebook because we can see, you know, the number of ad buys. And so that is in the influence map study. Um, I encourage people to look at that. It's not just their ad buys. It's really the messages that were carried forward and how many 
um, fossil fuel accounts and uh, fossil fuel executives per, uh, promoted those messages. Immediately, the industry was out blaming uh, renewable energy, blaming environmental policy, blaming uh, the president for high gas prices. And so that disinformation was very much linked to the gas price narrative, um, but it gave, uh, there was an industry conference the week after the invasion, a fossil fuel industry conference after the invasion and, um, and Influence Map sort of detected a lot of these narratives just carried forward by you know, leaders of the industry in addition to a huge network of proxies with connections to the industry. So a flood of messaging that gave a false impression about what was really driving high gas prices amplified both through concentrated media buys and through spikes in bot activity. So that's when we started to notice these unbelievable spikes in bot activity, where you have like a 700% increase in bot activity, bot amplification, um, coinciding with these big media buys. Now, I'm, the study does not suggest that bots are deployed by ad firms, but it is very interesting that the patterns are similar. And so really the fi main finding of the influence map study is that you know, the, the fossil fuel industry did use Ukraine to push false narratives and long-standing policy demands. I feel subtly saying to the president of the United States, we're going to pin the blame for high gas prices on you while we push through an agenda to increase production. I think Naomi Klein, author Naomi Klein calls it disaster capitalism. Uh -huh. um, and that is what the influence map study shows. And again, uh, influence map looked at lobbying behavior, ad buys, nature of amplification, the number of people saying these messages, the timing and the sequence of the whole thing. So the, you found some really alarming facts around the way mis and disinformation is being propagated, uh, as well as its effect on on media. We know that uh, we know that the social platforms, uh, we know that news media is some of the most meaningful media uh, for people for citizens so to see this media co-opted by what are arguably propaganda techniques is something i guess deeply concerning absolutely um you know when i read the talking points and i heard suddenly within 24 hours to a television ads carrying the same talking points on television already um and i heard multiple individuals within the industry repeating the same talking points almost word for word it disturbed me most because I realized they must have help. Mm. Um, there must be PR firms, communications firms helping to architect that. And, um, you know, to me, that's very concerning. Uh, and I hope our industry starts to take this matter very seriously. We're long past the time when it was just a few activists trying to be sensational and call attention to these issues. These issues affect human life and that's just disinformation and misinformation we haven't even gotten to greenwashing yet well let's talk about that let's talk about a definition of greenwashing if you can help us with that sure greenwashing is about producing false positive perceptions of a company or industry's environmental efforts false positive perceptions so um really when you hear people say things like talk green act dirty they're talking about greenwashing, okay? And what people need to understand about greenwashing is it exists, there are degrees, uh, there are shades of green, if you like. 
right? And so with some companies and industries, what they say and what they do or promote, there's a small gap. And in other cases and in other industries, there's a huge gap where you have, um, for example, 80% of an industry's messaging that is around their environmental good deeds when only 1% of their capital <laughs> expenditures are invested mm. in, in those types of initiatives. And so there's that big gap. Um, when we look at greenwashing in ads, what we're looking for is A, that gap, B, factual omissions and distortions. Um, so a factual omission would be just, you know, you can say there's not one solution to climate change if you're a big oil company without mentioning the fact that the burning of fossil fuels is the number one driver of climate change. Um, so that's an omission, right? Um, a factual distortion is when you're conflating terms, scientific terms. So you can say, you could talk about decarbonizing heavy industry and carbon capture and try to confuse consumers in terms of those two things. Like those two things are at odds with each other. Decarbonization means you're reducing the carbon content of materials burned. Carbon capture means you're capturing some of that content uh, after carbon after it's burned. So greenwashing is um, people need to understand it's a spectrum. So the spectrum would go from, you know, omissions to distortions to blatant lies. I will say this, as someone who has evaluated hundreds of ads, it is very rare to find blatant lies in ads. What you typically find is what we call paltering. Paltering is you're stringing together selective micro-truths to create a false impression. Um, and so the important thing when we're ad testing or when we're developing ads to, is to really be conscious of this stuff because ultimately the consumer's perception is what should dictate whether an ad is misleading or not, uh, not necessarily the intent behind mm. uh, the creation of it. This is another example where academic researchers and social scientists have provided us with peer-reviewed frameworks to evaluate greenwashing, um, to guard against it, um, and to vet our work as creatives. And we should very much use those frameworks. The Climate Social Science Network framework is, I think, the best one. Um, again, those are free resources for our industry. So I do want to make the point that, you know, when people talk about greenwashing, a lot of folks roll their eyes because they feel like everything is called greenwashing. But know that in our world of climate accountability, we have very specific definitions. We have very specific frameworks to evaluate. And so it just means that as an industry, we need to kind of pull back and educate ourselves on, on the frameworks, on the tools and the potential liability we might face or the risks we might face if we kind of let the problem just continue to spin out of control. I think what you're providing here is a, a really clear a prescription for for how to tackle this which is the first thing is to do the work is to understand that there's no avoiding that there are frameworks out there that you've drawn from and can be adapted to understand the risks of greenwashing and, and where on that uh, spectrum uh, a greenwashing event may lie and it's so important because the other critical point you made is that people are becoming 
concerned or scared of greenwashing because they perhaps don't have that frame those frameworks and understanding in place which you so so generously uh, so brought together i'm going to ask you and this is a difficult question because even the best intentioned uh, campaign even the best intentioned brand and so many brands that we work with and so much of our industry i think we should be proud of for their change their real mm-hmm. commitments to to net zero and and a, and a positive uh, future when it comes to carbon and emissions but even so the best intention work and often things like linkedin posts the own the the way we communicate the way we have discourse in uh, in the industry can can be perceived as greenwashing can be at risk of greenwashing again Part of this is these narratives that are around this this mis and disinformation that is so insidious. These propagandist techniques that are that are um, uh, inculcating this kind of thinking across media. I'm going to ask you to to sort of sum up um, again. If you're putting a campaign together, if you're posting on LinkedIn, if you're getting into discourse about that, give us the the quick checklist, if you like, uh, you would use to uh, to think about when producing. Sure. Well, the first thing I encourage agencies to do is to um, question the client brief. Uh, We are in a culture and an industry where we very much want to please the client. I very much want to please my clients. It's my number one job, making my clients happy. So do I. Um, you know, and uh, and so we want to take that brief and show how we can execute against it. Um, but in certain categories, it's incredibly important to really evaluate that brief even more than what the client is providing us. Um, so if it's a liquid natural gas ad or something, or even a soft drink ad uh, where it's you know suggesting that it's about consumer choice and there's no link to obesity or diabetes or you know, it is to us, it really is to our industry to start to educate ourselves on the basics, on the basics. Um, we should have a level of science literacy, enough science literacy to understand that methane is another greenhouse gas, just like CO2. So if we talk about low carbon, that's not the whole equation, right? Methane has 80 times the warming power of CO2. So as account people, as professionals, we should know enough about our client's category and the basics to be able to have that frame. So I do believe we need one, a sort of a brush up on that basic science literacy. And the second thing would be to apply these frameworks that social scientists have worked and provided to us for free. They work, um, they're in place, and they will help us do the second thing that we need to do, which is to proactively correct omissions and distortions in our ads and in our messaging. That means pushing back on the client a little bit. And I do get that, right? I understand we're in this position, but we have state AGs in this country. For example, Mara Healy of Massachusetts, who several months ago said, look, uh, first of all, she successfully prosecuted Purdue Pharma for its marketing of opioids. She successfully prosecuted McKinsey, uh, Purdue Pharma's marketing partner. Mm. And her message to PR and ad firms was, uh, you know, client confidentiality doesn't protect you. Uh, If you are going to help perpetrate fraud or harm on behalf of clients, we're gonna come after you. You Mm. better be darn sure that you're not doing this. Now, I think that that is going to be an upward trend so again, it just puts the onus on us as, as, as 
make leaders and communicators to be much more careful and to apply those frameworks. So I suggest, again, science literacy and literacy around greenwashing disinformation, applying the frameworks, proactively correcting factual omissions and distortions when we can, and don't do things that are obvious. For example, we're noticing huge media buys uh, against climate stories. Um, so fossil fuel marketers were very often, you know, position their content against a climate story, a breaking climate story, or against they'll sponsor a climate newsletter. You need to understand the basics in propaganda to know that that is basically the digital equivalent of sending 800 lobbyists to COP26, mm. right? You're not at that level engaging in a conversation about climate. You're commandeering it. So we need as an industry to be extremely clear about what practices we need to divest from. Yep. I care yep. less that agencies divest from fossil fuel clients. I care more that they divest from deceptive marketing practices and unethical marketing practices that should not be used given the challenges we face. Yeah, this is this is absolutely a question of ethics. And there's such opportunity here when we get this right. I, I work with a, a packaging brand who had made very clear uh, credentialed uh, commitments to uh, moving their packaging to being plant-based. Uh, they had one of the ro most robust plans um, for carbon neutrality and move towards net zero uh, and were leading in, in a lot of their communications with uh, being very clear and transparent with the public about those commitments. They knew it was the future of their business, but were concerned about um, leaning in to cover climate uh, coverage of the climate crisis uh, because they felt uh, they might be open to accusations, accusations of greenwashing, uh, and also yes. that uh, yeah that they were concerned that it wasn't appropriate. Now that clearly, where we've gone through the checklist that you provided, we've educated ourselves around the science literacy, we've understood that the commitments are clear, honest, and true. That's an advantage. That is meaningful media. That's a great media experience. Yet we're opening up that space because we're not monetizing this because we're, we're concerned about leaning in there because we don't have these frameworks to to necessarily know it's the right thing we're opening that space to fossil fuel companies that's right but we're also um you know when we look at the agencies and pr firms that have been most engaged in the practices i would consider to be problematic mm. That is really only about 20% of firms. Yeah. Um, I am a strong believer that, you know, most of us really care about this stuff, but it's hard mm. because it's evolving faster than we're able to, to uh, police it and to monitor it. So I, I really do understand that. And I do also understand clients feeling frustrated, like we're afraid to communicate anything because yeah. we're going to be accused of greenwashing. That is real. Um, I think we should honor that. It is a challenging, uh, it is a challenging ecosystem out there, uh, which is why right now it's incredibly important to kind of pull back. And as an industry, my my focus is to to galvanize the eighty percent of firms and agencies that are not engaged in the quote, worst practices, um, but that want to be better and raise the bar. I really believe now is the time for us to come together 
and to embrace uh, these challenges head on, to acknowledge the role that the PR and ad industry has played in creating climate obstruction um, and, uh, and, and to, to, to make a commitment to do better. We need to collectively acknowledge how serious the problem is mm. and we need to very clearly put in an action plan to change that and most importantly repudiate some of those unethical marketing practices such as astroturfing, false amplification, smear campaigns, things of that nature. Um, those activities are not only unethical, but I don't even consider them marketing activities. Mm. Those are political activities and they are benefiting from, because they're not classified as a lobbying organization, they don't have to report or disclose to the same level that a lobbying organization would, but they are absolutely engaged in a lot of them lobbying behavior um, and help clients through this challenging time. Mm. We absolutely are in a time where if you're you're Nestle and you're trying to do better on water, you're afraid to communicate that because you have activists who will be all over you the minute you say anything. I understand that. That is why now, um, you know, if I were to say the big rallying call for brands is candor. Yeah. Not purpose, not some grandiose vision. Yeah. It's candor. Absolutely. There is really an opportunity to disclose and show how difficult it is, um, what the challenges are, walk people, you know, open the kimono a little bit and have real conversations. I think that opens the door to more meaningful communications overall. I think that's absolutely critical. Our last meaningful brand survey was called The Age of Cynicism. And the reason for that title is that we found that although the vast majority of consumers, you know, is nearly 80% believed that brands must act now for, for people and planet very explicitly. They were concerned that they, they simply weren't really making that change. And, and so many brands are, but need to be honest with, with consumers. As you say, it isn't necessarily a, a, a lofty message of purpose. It's uh, honesty um, and clarity about uh, the journey ahead. Absolutely. And no brand is perfect. We're none of us are perfect, but I think embracing that imperfection can be a strength. I think that it will open up consumer trust. If you think about, you know, the cynicism towards the PR and ad industry mm. um, right now is is at a level I where I've never seen it before. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, Al Gore told the BBC he said that you know the PR campaign to obfuscate uh, the science around climate and to disrupt the flow of 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 just dialogue around this he said is he he said it's the moral equivalent of a war crime yeah that's such a powerful comment you know we, we i was reviewing some data from ipsos mori it's from last year but found that advertising executives were the least trusted profession uh, you know, less trusted than politicians, anyone in the media, than than bankers. And this is really concerning because the vast majority of our industry who are doing the right thing, who who I think, in, you know, will call out unethical behavior um, and unethical practices and are not engaging in them, are allowing themselves to be viewed through the lens of this small minority who, who practice uh, the kind of things that you've been speaking about. Why should the 80% be wired down by what the 20% is doing. I think the 80% of agencies out there trying to do the right thing are 
their reputation is impacted, no question, by these more um, egregious examples. And that is affecting our talent pipeline. Mm. That is affecting employee morale, especially younger employees who don't want to play a part in that. This is an inflection point for us. From everything you're saying, this should be at the very top, if not near the top of of a CMO's um, agenda. How should CMOs be thinking about this in terms of risk and uh, an opportunity? You talked about legislative risk coming in there. What's what's your advice to CMOs that might be listening? I have two pieces of advice to CMOs. The first would be to understand that climate is not an issue. Climate is an era. Mm. It's the meta context uh, in which you know you're communicating in a rapidly changing world. And those dynamics are going to affect your messaging. The second thing I would say is, um, you know, align your lobbying and your marketing. Typically, CMOs don't oversee public policy, Mm. or if they do, they tangentially oversee it. And that is why we're seeing such a misalignment between marketing initiatives of major brands and lobbying behavior of major brands. But journalists and the wider ESG, I would call it environmental social goal community is onto that. Mm-hmm. And so um, you, we don't live in a world where you can draw these artificial boundaries anymore. That is mm-hmm. simply not the reality or the lens that any consumers look through or that the public looks through or that journalists look through when they evaluate what you're doing. They need, CMOs should look at these issues more holistically should look at all of the ways they affect society. That the CMO's role, in my view, is expanding. You need to be seasoned and have people on your team that can help you navigate um, even during the most contentious times. I think the days of saying, oh, don't touch that political issue, remain politically neutral are over. There is no such thing as political neutrality. And uh, really, CMOs, I just encourage them to look through that wider lens and and make very make sure your choices and your investments align. I, I want to challenge you on that one a little bit, though, maybe, which is sure. perhaps it's not that there's no such thing as political neutrality. It's that there's no such thing as climate neutrality. This is a fascinating debate. Most brands, you know, have said, well, we, we do not take political stance. Mm-hmm. But what is happening is we're living in a world where politicizing issues is a mechanism, it's a propaganda technique. Um, take a benign issue like healthcare and politicize it. And then anybody who is pro-healthcare can be accused of being woke. That wow. is a strategy and a tactic. So, and, and, it, and it makes, that creates a condition where uh, brands will be afraid to embrace that issue or address it because they don't want to be seen as political. But mm-hmm. you have to understand, the political, that politicization, politicization of these issues is actually a tactic used. So that's why I say really politics is about our, our relationship with the nation. It's mm. about our relationship with each other. So I really think that this is um, a time when companies need to be very, and brand leaders need to be very conscious of these dynamics and not use the old rules, the old rules of, of staying away and don't talk about this and don't talk about that. Don't really apply. It's really about what you're embracing. So amongst the alarm and amongst the, the need for change, there's also opportunity. You've talked about some of that. What is the opportunity for brands here? The opportunity is 
raise your game. I mean, really, we have the opportunity to, to take on, to actually become not more meaningful, but more valuable to people. How do you, the question for brands is, how do you help under the current circumstances people live a better life? Mm. I mean, that really is the critical question. And the under, under the current circumstances part is also critical. So you really need to understand the current environment that you're operating in. If you're in a food, if you're a food brand, you need to absolutely understand the lobbying currents, the uh, you know cr- climate currents, and how they intersect to be able to message and to be able to do it with authenticity. So, um, I really think that we really, I think we should enter an era of candor, of radical truth telling. Um, we should not be afraid to lean into those more difficult, contentious stories um, and recognize that issues that shouldn't be political have been politicized. Science is a mm. perfect example of what I am talking about. Science should not have been politicized. It was politicized as part of a strategy and tactic to discredit or delegitimize uh, climate scientists. So look at the big game, look at the chessboard. And really um, try to figure out how to show up in that very confusing world in a way where you are really helping to better uh, the circumstances. I think that's really interesting that that where a brand is is doing better for people and planet, as we've consistently found that that adds to their meaning that they become a really meaningful brand. You know, we've always found that um, right from the inception of the survey that a lot of consumers would not care if many brands disappeared so that the way to make yourself valuable as a brand is to is to show that you are helping this change to be honest uh, in your communications um and uh, and also not engage in in any of these practices uh, we know that collective benefits will become more important over time and there's also lots of research both ours and external to say that those are the kind of brands that are to a certain extent inflation protected or at least more resilient in a kind of inflationary environment so there's so much here from a, a commercial perspective as well as uh, simply doing the uh, the right thing and avoiding unethical behavior so who are the brands that are getting this right who who's surprised you in a positive way give us some examples of those well i mean i always love the brands like impossible foods that start off their lifespan knowing they're going to come right against the big the big food production companies the meat companies they're going to come right up against those lobbies and they figure out how to narrate and curate an evolution, uh, brand evolution that, you know, kind of address those currents, but then still they're authentically themselves. They're not afraid to be themselves. And, you know, Impossible is a great example. They're for meat eaters. It, this is, they're not going to kowtow to veganism or anything. They want meat eaters to eat their products. They embrace that. And they are also very much about having conversations directly with the meat lobby. We're going to we're going to, you know, if you publish something about us, we're going to come right back at you. And so I think that they've been brave and bold and industry leading um, on that level. It's one of my favorite examples. It's so nice to find brands that stick with the fight, even if it's hard. And I think finding a fight is, is appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just a purpose, a fight. Look at the circumstances, right? A fight. And I think that's great because you're fighting to make the world better. And, and such an interesting playbook that can be taken through into into other brands in terms of, you know, we're seeing a lot of interest at the moment in terms of 
matching supply chain uh, promises and supply chain changes that brands are making as they become more sustainable, they move towards net zero, they get commission, get, they get emissions under control, and with how they're showing up in media. So we launched something called the sustainability marketplace and that was around explicitly uh, making sure that we were monetizing um, hard news we were monetizing news of the climate crisis and it's really interesting to see brands that are true to those promises kind of starting to st- uh, starting to show up in some of those places um, it is it's wonderful i agree so i want to thank you for such such useful powerful knowledge sharing today uh, but also uh, your passion and I guess, an inspiring call for change for our industry. Uh, I certainly feel as communications professionals, we can we can make the change. And actually, we have a responsibility to do so. We do. We have a responsibility. And now is the time. And reminding people that there are currently 13 state and municipal lawsuits uh, and two ongoing congressional investigations Um, into some of the issues that we've been talking about and the role of PR and ad firms is really central to that. There is a whole climate accountability movement in this country, a connected network of scientists, journalists, researchers, lawmakers that are working together and monitoring um, these issues. It is absolutely imperative that the CEOs of the big communications firms acknowledge this, plan for it, think about it, and responsibly manage um, this risk going forward. So I do think this is just a crucial time for our industry. Um, And I think we have the opportunity to do this elegantly, but we absolutely need to start now. Thanks, Christine. We like to finish each episode of the Meaningful Media Podcast with Fast Five. So these are uh, quick responses, uh, fast five questions on the most meaningful media to you. Are you ready? Sure. (laughs) Okay. So uh, first question, what's your meaningful media right now? Well, I watch the the, uh, International Space Station channel on Apple TV. So do I. I am such a dork, but I'm so glad I found someone who loves it too, because it to me is so beautiful and it reminds me why i'm doing what i'm doing it's hopeful and so i will turn it on and have it there as i'm working and it's basically saying this is what you're doing this is what you're helping to do and to me it's some of the most beautiful shots um for those that don't know it's live feed or different shots from the international space station what's the media that you start your day with if it's a good day I meditate. <laughs> so I do use calm. If it's a um, you know, bad day and I'm heady and I, I just go to Twitter, like my addiction. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm, a, I'm just addicted. It's terrible. But it, it, you know, it's, I've curated my feed mm. to the point where it's just largely very brilliant and inspiring people. It's a good platform for learning. So what media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? Yeah. I mean, I would say I turn media off right after this call. I have to write a script for a client and I'm going to Mendocino. I'm going to unplug. I'm going to go walk amongst huge redwoods and sit by the ocean. And I'm going to crank out a creative script. What is your media guilty pleasure? (laughs) Binge watching (laughs) Netflix. You know what I'm obsessed with? I just rewatched Chef's Table, which yeah. is a David Gelb series on Netflix. And 
the episode on John Kwong, I think is her name. She's mm-hmm. a monk, um, a Tibetan monk. And it is the most beautifully shot, beautifully told story. That's what I love about media is you can produce visceral experiences. Mm-hmm. You can take people back in time. You can make them aware of things that they normally uh, don't normally register. Uh, you can reframe things. And I think just we have so much potential with the tools available to us. So anyway, that's my guilty pleasure is binge watching shows on Netflix. Chef's, <laughs> chef's table, check it out. Um, so our most difficult question, you can have one media platform for the rest of your life. Which one is it and why? I mean... I guess it would be YouTube because I like video as a format. Mm, um, I like Twitter for the conversation. And can I mash the two together? <laughs> Afraid not. You've got to choose Twitter or YouTube. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, I guess I would say, all right, fine. If I have to choose Twitter. Twitter it is. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was amazing to have you. Uh, we really appreciate your time, your insight, and your passionate call for change. Sure thing. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's a great place to finish. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on today's episode. A big thanks to my fantastic guest for joining me and thanks to everyone tuning in. We'd love to hear from you and your thoughts on all things meaningful media, the media that matters. Drop us a mail at podcast at havasmg.com. That's podcast at havasmg.com. Please do subscribe, like, and share the Meaningful Media podcast on your preferred platform so you don't miss any of our episodes. And you can follow us on our socials, all addresses in the show notes. Once again, thanks. Join me, Ben Downing, soon for more perspectives on Meaningful Media. <laughs>